speaking of the Christmas spirit, we're going to dive into our Christmas series this morning uh, where uh, we're, we're calling it Here Comes Heaven, because that's really what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about God uh, fulfilling his promises to set all things right, make all things new, rescue this world that desperately needed rescue, and, uh, and ultimately bring heaven to earth. And, and it is that um, there's this, there's this uh, uh, thing in kind of Irish and Scottish uh, lore that they call the thin places. And when, the, when, they, when, when they refer to the Celtics, when they refer to the thin places, they're referring to little places where it seems like heaven meets earth. And, uh, and that's really what Christmas is all about. It's really what the story of Christ is all about. It's this moment when heaven meets earth. Uh, the, the, the prophetic word that was used back in the Old Testament was uh, it was a name, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what that means, God with us. And it is this, this really beautiful moment in history where heaven meets earth, but then it doesn't just end there because uh, after Jesus is finished doing everything that he has done, the Holy Spirit then comes and heaven still meets earth on a day-to-day basis for all of us. And so uh, those of us who follow, follow Christ and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Heaven meets earth regularly, uh, and, and that's just a really beautiful thing. But So we're going we're to talk about today this idea of, of what it looked like for, you know, literally hundreds and even, you know, thousands of years for a people to be waiting, waiting for a promise to be fulfilled. Just wait. Is anybody like waiting? I hate waiting. I hate waiting. Hate it. It's one of my least favorite parts of Christmas is the waiting. I hate the waiting. We, uh, we, we're going back to Oklahoma this year for, uh, to see our family for Christmas, and we're really excited about that. And we were going to be uh, driving. We decided we'd save a little money and just drive straight through. It's, you know, with bathroom stops and everything, it's, it's pushing 30 hours. And so it's, uh, but then the other day, I, I, I just couldn't, I bear it any longer, the thought of that long trip. And so uh, I bit the bullet and dipped into savings and, and uh, bought some plane tickets. So, so um, like I just, yeah, it's, it's so, so Merry Christmas, Jamie. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's good. We're, I, but I hate that. I hate the waiting. I hate it so much. And uh, it's, one, it's why I always wait until literally like Christmas Eve to buy all my Christmas gifts because once I buy them, I have to give them immediately. I hate the waiting part. And and, uh, and so I, I remember one of the things I waited on when I was a kid, I, I used to read comic books. I still read comic books, but uh, th- there was a reason for it when I was a kid. <laughs> and uh, and so, so, but you remember in the old comic books in the back, there would all be all these uh, little advertisements of little things that you could send in for, you know, so you could beat up your bully and, you know, things like that. And I remember there was an ad in one of them I was reading. I was about 11 or 12 years old and it was, um, a thing to help you train your dog how to catch a frisbee. Well, I had at the time I had uh, a big, fat—I mean, morbidly obese—beagle uh, named Pearl, and and uh, I mean she was she literally would walk around and her belly would drag on the ground, and and so I know. Anyway, so um, anyway, but she was a good dog, and I thought, man, I need to, she needs to be in shape, so I'm going to teach her how to catch frisbees. And, uh, and so 11, year, 12-year-old me decided to send off for this special Frisbee for teaching dogs how to catch Frisbee. And, and, and the, the trick to this Frisbee that they were going to send you is that it was scented like bananas, because we all know a dog's weakness is bananas. 
<laughs> I have no idea. Actually, there were two, now that I think about it, there were two options. You could choose the banana option or the chocolate option, which for dogs, isn't that just cruel? Isn't that just plain cruel? So anyway, so I sent off for the banana scented Frisbee. And, uh, and, and you know, when, you, when you're a kid, I don't know if you ever sent off for anything when you're a kid, but you just, there's this anticipation, like I was, I mean, just immediately checking the mailbox every single day. When's it going to get here? When's it going to get here? When? And then finally, you know, after three or four months had passed and I had forgot I even sent off for a banana scented Frisbee, it shows up, right? And so I was so excited and, and just get outside and, you know, get Pearl out there in the backyard with me and, and uh, you know, throw the Frisbee and then I go get the Frisbee. And then I throw the Frisbee, and then I go get the Frisbee again, and Pearl wasn't moving. She wasn't having any part of it. Uh, she didn't like the banana-smelling Frisbee. <laughs> she didn't like any, anything about it, so if anything, she got a little exercise from uh, probably doggy laughing at me uh, throwing and fetching my own Frisbee. So, um, but I did, but the, the waiting to get it there was just unbearable as a kid. I can, I can still remember it. And imagine for just a second, if you would, the um, a promise being made to you, or let's just say to all of us, a promise being made to all of us as a people, and and having to to wait to see that promise fulfilled, not just decades, but centuries, even into millennia, um, um, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You have to think at some point. If, if the waiting on the fulfillment of this promise is a part of your religion, it, it would, it would, the waiting would just become the religion. You would lose hope that it was ever, ever actually going to be fulfilled or that it was ever, ever going to happen, and the whole religion would just be, start to center around the waiting itself, right? Which was kind of what happened with, with Israel. Um, it had kind of grown in on itself because they had become so hopeless. Now, the story of Israel, and some of you guys will, will start reading the Old Testament from time to time and, and come to me uh, with, with much um, um, confusion or, or just uh, mad at me. For some reason, you get mad at me because the Old Testament exists. And, uh, and just because it's so, it can be so bleak to read through it. It seems like a lot of judgment and punishment and wrath and, and uh, uh, a lot of, it's, you know, sections of it read like the phone book. Um, you know, it's just, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Or there's, you know, 20 pages of descriptions of, you know, the exact measurements of the temple and the lumber that was used and the gold and, the, you know, just this whole, you know, uh, uninteresting home improvement show, uh, you know, and so, so it, it can be a little hard to kind of muddle through, and, and part of it is to remember that the purpose of the Old Testament is to drive the point home how badly we needed a Savior. It's not necessarily supposed to be, like, like every little page or every little story in the Old Testament doesn't necessarily have a moral to it or, or, or a, a happy ending or whatever. Sometimes it's just setting the stage for why the world needed Jesus so badly. And so it's, it's, it's a little bit like the Star Wars prequels. They're horrible to watch, but, but you understand, you know, it helps you understand why you need to get to 
whiny Luke Skywalker eventually, right? And so, so it, it's, a little, it's a little bit like that. So it's, it's just, it is, I, I have a love-hate, just as you all do, I'm sure have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the Old Testament because there are times that it's, that sometimes the stories are glorious and they're epic, epic, like Lord of the Rings epic, you know, that sort of thing. And, and then sometimes it's just, you know, there's stuff going on. It's like, I don't even know how to make sense of it. But all through, throughout the story of Israel in the, in, in the Old Testament, it's this story of a cycle that kept happening over and over and over. And the cycle went like this. The children of Israel, Israel would be following God, worshiping Him and Him alone, and then they would fall into sin and rebellion and, um, and invite false gods into their world and all that kind of stuff and start worshiping false gods. And then God would reach out to them, usually through a prophet of some sort, and say, you guys need to repent. You got to get back on track. It's going to go bad for you if you don't. And then, you know, after warning, after warning, eventually it goes bad for them and discipline happens or some nation comes in and takes them over or something like that. And then, oh, they're like, woe is me. And like, oh, we got to get, we got to get back to Jesus. And, and, you know, we got to become a Christian nation again, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And then they, then they do that. Uh, they kind of repent and go back to God and they serve God, and there's a renewed, renewed interest around the scriptures and around the temple and all that kind of stuff, and then the cycle starts over again. They start rebelling, they go into sin, they go into punishment, and it's just, it's just a cycle that happened over and over throughout the Old Testament. That was the story of Israel. And all along, though, throughout all these prophecies and all these stories, there would be these little hints and promises of, and prophecies of a Messiah, a Messiah, a rescuer, a savior who would come and set the world right, set everything right again, bring Israel to its power and glory and, and um, uh, rule in justice and righteousness. Sometimes this guy would show up and he would do this. And, and so they, were, they had learned to kind of be on the lookout for this guy. They, had, they knew the prophecies. They knew the things that would point to whoever this was going to be. And they were expect, expecting some sort of just man, political leader of sorts that would come and a new king who would you know, bring Israel uh, back to its uh, former glory and beyond. Uh, they had no concept that this man would also be God. That was not anywhere in their scope of imagination. They had, had no concept of that at all. Um, but there's prophecies. So you, you have these great little prophecies, and there's, there's hundreds of them throughout the Old Testament, hundreds of them. I don't have time to read I just want to read a couple of them. This morning, and, and so one of my favorites is in Psalm chapter two. This is what we call a messianic psalm uh, that points to the coming of a Messiah figure who would who would uh, be God's man on the ground. And it starts off. It says this: Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And then later in the psalm, it says, "As for me, I've set my king on Zion." That was the other name for Jerusalem that they would use. I've set my king on Zion, my holy, here, my holy hill. And later he says, and the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then finally at the end, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is this, this song that they would sing that would help remind them that there's a that God sending a man who will, who will make things right. And one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Isaiah. And, the, and the, Isaiah's prophecies, lots of messianic prophecies there. And uh, one of my favorites is there in uh, chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born. By the way, I can't read this without wanting to sing 
the Messiah. For unto us a child is born. All right. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so, again, this pointing to this man that, that, that God would send to this Messiah, the Savior, who would set all things right. And what we find is that all of these Messiah prophecies are rooted in a promise that goes way back to, the, to almost the very beginning of Scripture. If you go all the way back into, into Genesis, even in the creation stories, there are hints of Christ, just little shades, shadows of something that's happening. It's still very foggy. You're not sure what's happening, but little bitty hints of, of, of Christ. Uh, uh, but you, when you fast forward to about Genesis chapter 12 and you get into the Abraham story, uh, who at, at, in the beginning was a guy named Abram, whose name was eventually changed to Abraham. But when you get into Abraham's story in chapter 12, God promises little old Abraham that he is going to bless him, give him a big, big family that will then go on and bless the entire world. And this is the first promise of God setting the world right that we begin to see right here through this, this, this guy named Abraham. Now, now, the thing with Abraham, though, is that he was old. Old, old. Like, old. Oh, like, like yet this, at the, in the, you know, at the beginning of the Abraham story, he's, he's probably in his 70s and 80s, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but by the end, he's, he's, he's pushing 100. I mean, he's, he's well up into years. And so not only was he old, but his wife was up there with him. She was old too. And they had no kids, none. And so God had promised to give them a big family, bless them with a, with a people and a land that would bless the entire world. How do you have a big family when you have uh, no kids to speak of, right? Uh, he, had, he had servants. He had extended family. Uh, but he didn't have any children, offspring of his own. And so, but they, but they just believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. But years passed, and now they're even older. Uh, in fact, one passage in the, in the Genesis refers to them as dusty. <laughs> That's great. Use that this Christmas on your mother-in-law. That'll be good. That'll be great. So I'll do it. I'll do it if you do it. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, but they're, they're way up there in age. They're really, really old. And, and as, you know, uh, probably a couple decades have gone by, no promise fulfillment. They still don't have kids. They be they're beginning to lose hope, obviously, as any of us would. I mean, the, the fact that they had any hope to begin with is a miracle, Right. But now they're, what hope they had, they're beginning to lose. So now we're in Genesis chapter 15, and it says this. This is such a great story. It's a really interesting story. It's a really confusing story. We're going to read the whole chapter today. Uh, but there's some powerful stuff happening in this story, and it really gets to the heart of the promise of the Messiah. It really gets to it. So it says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. He's like, I still don't have any kids. 
been years since you initially made that promise. I still have no kids. In fact, all my stuff, all my possessions, all my flocks and herds and everything that I own in this, you know, materially in this world, any blessing I have to pass down to anybody else, it's not even going to go to one of my kids because I don't have any. It's just going to go to one of my servants. And it says, And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Just one of my servants. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God is, he sees Abram feeling hopeless and feeling like, when or if, how is this possibly going to happen? I have no children. He says, come outside with me. He has him look up at the stars. It's a beautiful night, full of stars. This is pre-electric light, pre-street lights, pre-big cities, no light pollution, clear, clear. Anybody ever been out like camping or whatever up in the mountains where you can see the skies better and you actually can see the Milky Way sweep, sweeping through the sky and the skies are so clear? It looks, at first you think there's clouds up there and then you realize it's not clouds at all. It's just how tightly those stars are clustered just beautiful, absolutely stunning. This is the kind of night sky that Abram is viewing as God says, look, go ahead and start counting those. Go ahead. If you can, go ahead and count them. And obviously, you can't. You can't count that. He's like, that's, that's, what, your, that's what your family's going to look like. That many. So, and, and, and then, remarkably again, we're told that Abram believed God. Believed him in his dusty old age. Just believed him. And that's what was counted to him as righteousness, not his law keeping, not his rule following, not his church attendance or his giving or his volunteering or anything like that. His belief, his faith. That's what was counted to him as righteousness. Beautiful. But then something interesting happened. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, this is Abraham talking, O Lord God, how am I to know what I, what I, that I shall possess it? How am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, God said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. They brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, it's a really, when, when God says, when Abraham says, how, am I, how do I know? How, how do I know? How, how do I know if you're going to keep your promise or not? And God says, go give me a cow, cut it in half. Go give me a, 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 you know, all these different animals, cut them in half. Give me some birds too while you're at it, right? Immediately, Abraham knew what was happening. Now, we don't. We don't get this because this is not our culture. They're like, what's going on here? What? But Abraham immediately knew. This was a common um, uh, ceremony that would take place in Abraham's time, usually between two tribal chiefs that were trying to come to an agreement or some sort of treaties or, or make a promise to one another or something like that. It was, it was a common ceremony. It was a way that they, they would take some animals and sacrifice them. And this is what they would do. Now, um, I wanted to sacrifice animals this morning. 
I did, but insurance said I couldn't. And, um, and so I need uh, one, two, three, and Marin, just because just cause I can. Uh, the, all four of you come up here. All right. Um, yeah, all three of you right there. Yep. Yep. Jackson. Oh, okay, no, Jackson, you're off the hook. No, okay, okay, come on. All right, so, all right, so let, uh, let me go two of you here and two of you here. All right. Now, no, no, do I have to do everything, guys? Come on. Lead us, lead us. <laughs> all right, here we go. All right, right there, right, right, right here, right there. Okay. All right, a little pathway. Okay, so let's see. Uh, you get a bird. All right. Uh, you get a bird. Uh-huh. And uh, you get a cow. And you get a cow. All right. Oh, and a receipt. I'll take that. All right. All right. So, all right. All right. So, uh, go ahead. Hold them up high. Hold them up high. All right. So, this was the ceremony, except normally they would just be laid out down the ground. They're only holding them up high for your, your benefit. So, anyway. So, normally these pieces would just be split and sacrificed, laid on the ground with a little path in between them, Right. And the two tribal chiefs would lock arms and walk between the sacrificed halves of animals. And by doing that, by making that little journey through all this uh, blood and meat and everything, it was their way of saying to one another, if I break my promise to you, may, the, may what happened to this cow happen to me. If I break my promise to you, may what happened to this beautiful gospel bird happen to me. Chick-fil-A, so it's gospel. No, it's not Chick-fil-A. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> like, 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 if if I break my promise to you, you can take my life, right? All right, you can you can put them down now. Just set them down right where you're standing. Right where you're standing. That's fine. You can have a seat. All right. Thank thank you guys. Thank you. All right. So, so that's that's what was going on, and that's exactly when when God told told Abraham get get the animals, he knew exactly what God was getting ready to do. He knew, okay, God's going to make a, a blood oath with me. He's going to promise on his life that he'll fulfill this promise. We're going to promise each other. Abram's, Abram's like, I know what's getting ready to happen. God's going to tell me, if I break my promise to you, Abraham, then I will forfeit my life. And Abraham knew, I'm going to have to tell him, if I break my promise to you, I'll forfeit my life as well. Beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, now look what happens next. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And he's talking, he, this is God letting him know, I will keep my promise, but there's going to come a time when, when all your children are going to be taken into slavery into Egypt. He's letting him know this ahead of time, right? He says, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here on, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, I want to pause on that little statement right there, because it's really interesting, because it tells us a little bit about the character of God. He's saying, eventually I'm going to bring you back here but it's not going to happen yet. Your families can't come back yet because the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. And what it does is it lets us, it gives us a little bit of a peek into the mind of God. And Revelation does this a lot too, where 
the way God works at times, sometimes, is that when people sin against him, or when a group of people or whatever sin against him, he doesn't just immediately go, you sinned, snuff you out. That's not what he does. Instead, what we talked about this, was it last week, the long-suffering of God, the patience of God, that sort of thing? What happens instead is that God actually at times allows that sin to, to grow and mature and become even more wicked and even more ugly. Because when judgment day comes, God wants to make sure that no person can stand up to God and go, how dare you judge me? They will know exactly why they are being judged. Exactly why. There'll be nobody in this world that can stand up to God and go, you can't judge me. They'll know. God has allowed it to grow and grow and grow. But someday, justice will come. Justice will come. Now, look at that little aside. That's for free. Now look at this last little paragraph. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. So here it is. Abram's sitting there. He's waiting to do this ceremony with God where they're going to make a blood oath to one another. And instead, God puts him into a deep sleep and he has him kind of chilled out. And what happens is that God goes through the pieces by himself. By himself. See, what the, the promise that God made with Abram is not, I'll keep my promise to you if you keep my promise to me. The promise God made to Abram is, if I, Abraham, if I break my promise to you, I'll forfeit my life. And if you break your promise to me, I'll still forfeit my life. I'll still forfeit my life. This promise has nothing to do with you, Abraham. It's all on me. That's going to go better for you if you obey me and if you follow me. But I will keep my promise regardless. And if your children decide to stop following me, I will keep my promise regardless. And once they grow from a family into a, a tribe and they break their promise to me, I will still keep my promise. And once they grow from the tribe into a great nation, I will still keep my promise. Because great is my faithfulness. Great is my faithfulness. Beautiful, beautiful. It's like a messianic prophecy wrapped into a, a, a story versus just some sort of prophecy. It, it's God initiating the promise that would become these... You know, when, you, when you're a parent, you ever, you ever have, go through a situation with your kids where they've done the same boneheaded thing over and over again and, and you've gotten on to them and, and um, you know, you just kind of, you've had it, you kind of let them have it. And then they come to you, they're very apologetic, very repentant, right? I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry. I, I know, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. I promise I won't do it again, right? And if you're a good parent, you you know, you appreciate their humility and you, you forgive them. You forgive them. Even though you know that they're probably going to do it again. I mean, this is, this is the way it works. It's just, this is the way, you know, most kids are. They're probably going to eventually make the same mistake again. But you know what? I mean, when that happens, when one of my kids does that, I don't immediately jump to judgment. Um, like write them off. I don't do that. Well, that's, still, that's still my son. That's still my daughter. 
I love them. I'm going to try to get them back on the right path. I'm going to try to exercise a little discipline to help them learn or whatever, but, but they can't outspend my love, right? I'm dad. I'm dad. And eventually they're going to screw up and it's going to cost me. And I just know. As a parent, you just know there are some bills to pay for being a parent that aren't your fault, right? Any, any parent ever paid a bill that wasn't your fault, <laughs> right? Yeah, whether it's a, a traffic ticket or a new piece of furniture or patching a hole in a wall or, you know, God forbid, building a new house because they burnt down the old one or whatever, you know, I mean, like, I mean, eventually there's going to be a bill to pay for being a parent, right? But, and I think that's, that's God all throughout this history of Israel. He's, He's looking ahead. He's looking ahead to the day he fulfills that promise, and he knows as dad, as their heavenly father, they can't pay this bill. I know I'm going to have to pay this bill. I know I'm going to have to do that. It's too high a price for them. So I just have to do it. And all the while, even as he's walking through piles of meat here with Abraham, or without Abraham, he knows this is going to cost me. It's going to cost me my life. It's going to cost me my son. I will pay the price for this. But I'll do it because I love him. That's my child. That's the way God works. That's the way God works. As they would wait for their Messiah for hundreds of years, And lose hope. I can only, I, I just I I need you to know this morning that that term Messiah was not just some promise for the Jewish people. You need that Messiah just as much as they did. You need that rescue, that Savior, just as much as they ever did. God initiated that plan not just for the sake of Abraham. He initiated that plan for the sake of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this world that he calls his child. Promise came. And I know everybody comes into church week to week with a little something different on your mind. You're coming from a different place. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what your story is exactly. I don't know what, stuff, what baggage you're dealing with this morning or what relationship problems you're, ha you're having or financial problems you're having or health problems or whatever else. I, I don't know what's going on. I know there's stuff going on, though, right? And some of you have been praying for rescue for what seems like forever. And I want to tell you this morning that the rescue that you've been praying for is already here, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And he's all the rescue you need. Now, I'm not saying that all your dreams are going to come true and, and you know, the world will just, you know, you'll be seeing it through rose-colored glasses from this point forward. Or I'm, I'm, that's, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. Life hits and it hits hard, right? All state commercials tell us that all the time. It hits, right? But this is what I know. When life hits me hard, my rescuer is walking with me side by side. He is there with me through the pain, through the victory, 
through the tears and through the laughter, through the joy and through the disappointment. He is right there with me. And the rescue that I'm often praying for is usually, always, right there with me, walking beside me. This is the big point I want you to get today, is this. Like, weep no more, because hope is on the horizon. Weep no more. Hope is on the horizon. The hope that you need, it is here. It is a, it, it, it's not, we're, we're looking on the backside of, of, uh, of the Christ story. Like he came. He conquered. He, he, res, he resurrected. He's the first of many who will resurrect. That hope that we have is in Him. You guys are looking for, oftentimes as we all do, we're looking for hope in a paycheck. We're looking for hope in a healing. We're looking for hope in a restored relationship. We're looking for hope in a new job. We're looking for hope in whatever. And I'm telling you, all the hope you need is in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you have him through all those circumstances, that's all you need. You'll make it. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Dry those eyes. I love, I say that to my girls all the time. And Isaiah once in a while. Dry your eyes. Dry your eyes. It's going to be okay. Take a deep breath. That's the big one I say to Beto especially. Take a deep breath. Breathe in. Breathe in. Dry your eyes. Okay. We got this, right? That's, that's the Heavenly Father coming to you this morning going saying the same thing to you. It's okay. Your hope is here. Your rescue is here. Reach out. and Walk in this world. Walk in this mess and everything that we're going through. Walk with Jesus. And you'll get through just fine. You will. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is that we're not alone anymore. Christ is here. Spirit of Christ dwells within us. We, he walks with us constantly. We don't, we don't mourn as a people who have no hope, right? Because we have hope. The first Peter gives us our, our church name. We, we have this living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have every possible reason to hope. Why? Because God keeps his promises. And he promised that he's coming again and eventually this world will be set right with righteousness and justice and God keeps his promises. The same God who kept his promise through Jesus Christ will be the same God who brings us into his kingdom. Amen? He sets all things right. That, that's Merry Christmas. That's Christmas. So, let's pray. Let's pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, you are good and I praise you and thank you this morning because you are a God who keeps his promises. Thank you so much for keeping your promise to send us rescue. Thank you so much for sending your son to pay the price that was too high for us to pay. Thank you so much for inviting us into a beautiful day-by-day, minute-by-minute relationship with you. God, help us to live present in that relationship, knowing 
uh, that you are with us. Emmanuel, you are with us. So we just give you all the praise and glory this morning. We thank you. We anxiously await the day when the project that you began through Jesus Christ is finished in Jesus Christ and this world is made new again. We love you. Lead us and guide us in the way that you want us to go. In Jesus' name.